Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Chit Heads. I'm here with Jillian Tarecki today. And uh, Jillian is a, a special guest for me because she's actually one of my current teachers. She teaches at Kula Yoga Project in Williamsburg in Brooklyn and also in uh, the, the Tribeca location in Manhattan. She is really at the forefront of, uh, of, a, of a movement that is really starting to integrate Iyengar with Vinyasa, and so I gain a lot of inspiration uh, from her classes for my own. And she's also, in the last year, taken a shift to working a lot with relationships, and so we're going to really focus on that today, and I'll ask her a lot of questions on, on what she thinks are the, the kind of fundamental models Modern obstacles to you know relating with one another. So, hello, Jillian. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Jacob. Thanks for having me. So, one thing that I wanted to uh, get you to talk about is just the story of your practice. So, you know, how did you come to yoga? How did you? Um, what were kind of the key moments of transition in your own practice and in your relationship with teaching? And also, then kind of segue us into then uh, this more recent shift toward working on relationships and how your yoga practice has kind of brought you to this place. Okay, so um, 15 years ago, I, you know, I was always into movement. I was always into dancing. I was never a professional dancer. I went to the gym a lot. I, I always basically needed to use my body as a way to release energy or create energy. And I was really stiff. Like, I couldn't touch my toes and my boyfriend at the time was literally like, this is pathetic. you got to go to a yoga class. So I went to a yoga class at Crunch Fitness and back in the day. And I loved it. Mm. I loved it. And uh, I just, I, you know, what I love so much about it was, well, A, I just, I think I needed the variety. I needed to do something totally different with my body that I had been doing. And I just felt so amazing afterwards. Mm. And so I just, uh, I immediately took to it and started practicing like four to five times a week, developed a home practice as scary as it must have looked at the time. <laughs> and, um, and then did a teacher training, I guess, I don't know, four or five years into practice, four years into practice, four years into practice. And uh, yeah, and then... Um, what teacher training did you do? I did Laughing Lotus. Mm -hmm. And, you know, at the time there was... There was not a lot of teacher trainings. There was, uh, there was the only thing there was really happening in New York was Om mm. Yoga, Jiva Mukti, and Laughing Lotus. Yeah. So even though I was practicing a little bit at Om, I started to practice at this place called Bhava Yoga, which was this tiny little like hole in the wall yoga studio in a converted like community center in the East Village, which is where I met one of my current teachers, Skylar Grant, who started Kula Yoga. So I did my training at Laughing Lotus, and it was... So you met Skylar before Kula? Oh, yeah, way before Kula. Wow, cool. Yeah. And uh, I... And she was, you know, has been my teacher for about, I don't know, 12 years. So I um, did the teacher training at Laughing Lotus, the 200-hour, and it was great. It's a great training. It's what I needed at the time. Mm -hmm. And then I very quickly segued into becoming a teacher. I got a, a private client right away. And I taught some community classes at Laughing Lotus. And at the time, I, you know, I started going back to Kula because it just really resonated with me most. And uh, Kula had 
at the time, like, opened up its doors maybe, like, a year prior, and um, I took a hiatus from Kula just to immerse myself at Laughing Lotus to do the training. And then I started practicing again at Kula, and Kula was, like, a tiny little shop Mm. back then. It was a different location. Um, It was just Tribeca, Mm -hmm. but just one room Mm -hmm. and a tiny room. And I sort of entered that teaching community at a very good time there were just like a couple of teachers that any good like two teachers on wow. the yeah I mean maybe there are more but nothing like amazing and I you know auditioned mm-hmm. this was uh how many years ago now I want to say it's 10 years 10 or 11 years and uh I immediately got put on the schedule and we didn't have basic class at the time. And there was all these classes that were just sort of, you know, it was just at a really good time. So Mm. that's how I started teaching. Mm. And what was your style of teaching like at that time? Because, uh, you know, obviously now you've moved into a very mindful, very alignment based, like very intelligent form of, of vinyasa. Right. With a lot of, you know, as I was mentioning at the beginning, very informed by a Yengar principles and, and the kind of innovative approach to practice that they have in the use of props. So what were you, what was your practice like at that time or what was your teaching well, like? Well, um, I, at the time had a very strong commitment and immersion within Anusara yoga. Mm. So I always had an interest in alignment and it was always something that could be seen in my classes. Okay. So it just wasn't Iyengar, it was Anusara. And I think that um, I just, I wanted to go more in that direction. And, and Kula was always very um, specific in its teaching. And Skylar had a lot of um, background in alignment stuff. And it was a slower flow and it was a more... Um, specific flow Mm -hmm. and very intelligent like intelligence was always a part of the sequencing and so I just sort of gravitated towards that and then the Anusara was like part of it excellent yeah so then moving into more you know the contemporary scene now with your life Mm -hmm. what has you know how has the the your own your own yoga practice and kind of the the situation of your life led you to this relationship work okay so i've been teaching now i mean if you were to include like my first private i've been teaching now for almost 12 years so like 11 and a half years and i would say like three more even Three to four years ago, I started to have this feeling of, like, I wanted more, mm. but I just didn't know what it, what it looked like. Like, would I open a studio? Like, you know, what was, what was sort of, like, the next step for me? Was I going to travel the world and teach these workshops and, you know, be that kind of, like, teacher? Mm-hmm. And... It just became clearer to me. I, I, know, I knew that I didn't want to open up a studio. Yeah. I didn't want to open something that was going to like compete with Kula. It's just, and I'm so not like, I just don't want to own a business in that way. Mm-hmm. It's just not my interest at all. And I knew that something would have to come into my life that would be complementary to everything because what I love about yoga is that it builds the awareness it shifts your physiology. The moment you shift your physiology, you're, you're affecting your psychology. But it's just sort of like you do all this yoga, then what? 
Mm-hmm. Then what? And part of it is like, yeah, I wanted to make more money and I didn't want to like slave, you know, teach 15 classes a day. I didn't want to do that route at all and do the burnout. It just it's so un- un- uninteresting to me. And it's not really good for us as teachers to burn out. Mm-hmm. The whole point is to keep the fire burning yeah, for and sure. alive. And that's yeah. and that's how we're supposed to lead. Mm-hmm. And there is a lot of burnout happening with teachers working too much. Oh, so much. Yeah, and they just get on autopilot. You can tell it's very scripted. It's very scripted. It's Mm -hmm. so much because people are trying to pay rent. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, it's, you know, this is about sustainability. Right. And, uh, you know, I, I, um, you know, I had recent events that were really traumatic in my life. And I, and it was sort of like the impetus that, that it was like that, that, when any when anything breaks down, I believe it's because it's creating room for something to be built up. Yeah. So it's like you know you have like Shiva destroying, you know, exactly. and then things need to like re- rebuild itself. Mm-hmm. And I everything got, is fertile soil for something new to grow. Oh, everything! Yeah. And when and when your world actually falls apart, mm-hmm. when things really do fall apart, it's. I believe it's the universe sort of like knocking on your door and saying, wake up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is not the path that you were supposed to be on. Let's see what the new path is. Mm-hmm. And although I've never doubted yoga as part of my path, it's very clear for me. I started to um, study with Anthony Robbins mm-hmm. and coaching and the way that he coaches. And I became... A life coach, which I, I hate to call myself a life coach because his school is called strategic intervention. So there's something very strategic about it. Everything that he does is to return the person to a greater sense of fulfillment and mm. purpose. And mm-hmm. I, I believe that that's what we're doing as yogis. And he does focus a large part on relationships. And I don't, I'm not just a relationship coach, but I do focus on relationships because of the failures of my past relationship. I wanted to understand all this. Yeah. And I see people in so much pain. Mm. And I also see people breaking up when they really don't need to, but it's because they just don't have the tools. Mm-hmm. They don't know any better to stay together. And so if I can help people grow in their relationships, if I can keep people together who I feel should be together, they just don't know how to be together, then that's the kind of work I want to do. Mm. So <clears throat> do you think that a yoga practice just inherently prepares a person to be more receptive in relationships? Or do you think that there's a way of practicing yoga that can keep you just as kind of limited and contracted and incapable of relating in the way that you're trying to help people relate? Right. It's mm, a good question. You know, sometimes I feel like Yoga is so powerful that just practicing it is going to create shift. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I do believe that. But I also believe that we are creatures of habit. Mm-hmm. And the patterns that we, that we habituate in life are going to, come, are going to creep its, their way into our yoga practice. Right. And yes, I do believe that there is a way to practice where there's not a lot of shift happening. Mm-hmm. I think there's always shift, shifts occurring, but it's not always optimal. But but the reality is, is that the more mature you become in your practice, it'll always lead you towards more healing. Yeah. The purpose will be healing, not the handstand. Yeah. 
Always. I'm actually really glad you said that because, you know, my practice, and this is what I see with a lot of people who've been practicing maybe less than a year, a couple of years, is that they're very attracted to kind of the more fitness-oriented classes. Like when I went to yoga, what I loved about it, and I also first encountered yoga at a gym, was how hard it was and, and how you know, physically just challenging it was. And, and I didn't really care about any of the philosophy. I didn't care about alignment. I just cared about this like crazy sweaty experience that I had. And, and so, you know, I teach, uh, hot yoga at a certain studio and, and there are also students there that perhaps, you know, the class they really should be spending some time in isn't a Yangar class or an alignment basics class, but I would never have gone to any Yangar class when I first started practicing. No it would have bored the hell out of me. Yeah, but now that's all I want to do I, yeah. as I want to like go to three Yangar classes a week so that I can, you know, learn so much more in a subtle way about my physicality. So I think you're totally right. And I think that's a good point to make that it's not so much, you know, we should be telling people who are new to their practice, so this is what you need, but that there's just something about the logic of the practice as you mature in it that leads you to the subtler and leads you to the more intelligent kind of awakening process. Always. Mm -hmm. Always. And, And I agree with you. There's no point in telling a student who's like, even within the first five years of their practice... Mm-hmm. Certainly, the first year, but even maybe for some, even the first five years, yeah. like you know, you can suggest it, but you know, to get frustrated at their just wanting the challenge. I mean, that's part of that's just part of the growth. That's part of the trajectory. Yeah, we get into it because it's a challenge, mm-hmm. and it challenges us in a way that is um, totally different in other ways that we've been challenged mm-hmm. and in it and that and there is so much significance and there's so much meaning in that in and of itself sometimes we'd need a good kick in the ass yeah absolutely and 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 sometimes that's what yoga gives you in the beginning mm-hmm. and even now yeah even now i need a good kick in the ass mm-hmm. but and your classes kick ass yeah. too i mean they're very intelligent they're very subtle but they're also very hard yeah. a lot of a lot of weeks yeah so you know and and also a kick in the ass can can look different for mm-hmm. everyone you yeah. know so but for sure, the longer you practice, you want to know what an advanced practice is. It's, you know, someone who is interested in the healing, mm-hmm. in the longevity, mm-hmm. in the subtle body. Yeah. Always. It just always happens that way. Mm. And so I think that in my, you know, with all the years that I've been practicing, which is like, you know, not, not a short amount of time, but of course not a long amount of time compared to, you know, some of the teachers I have out there. I feel like it's only natural that I want more healing. And, and the thing is, it's like, it, you know, the yoga deals with the body. And some of the philosophy is the way that it's presented is a little too esoteric mm-hmm. for me. Mm-hmm. And I feel like with the coaching that I do, it's all yogic philosophy, but it really just brings it to reality. Great. So I love that as a segue because I want to ask, that was actually the next question I wanted to ask you is what aspects of yoga philosophy, whether, you know, it's, you know, certain texts or teachings that inform, you know, what, what are they and and how do they inform this um, perspective on relationships? Right. So, I mean... Look, I could sit here and bullshit you and tell you it's the Bhagavad Gita or the Sutras. <laughs> and, and, you know, I have to tell you, I've read them all. I've read different translations of it. And, of course, there's, like, elements to it. I love metaphor. And, you know, when you read this, it's all metaphor. And I love symbolism. Mm-hmm. I grew up loving Greek mythology. Like, this is, like, so all-in-keeping. But it's hard to read. You know, mm-hmm. it's, like, 
harder than Shakespeare. And like, you know, Shakespeare, you need like a teacher to like break it down and all that. And um, I have to say, you know, I can't really quote like any or say that there's any one particular book, but it's more the message. Mm -hmm. And the message is always a return to the heart. Mm -hmm. Always a return to the heart. The mind is a beautiful thing, but the mind is designed to keep you out of danger. Mm-hmm. The heart is not designed to keep you out of danger. The mind is, is, is there to remind you of all the past wounds, of everything else, to keep you out of danger. It has its purpose, mm-hmm. but it's always the path to the heart. And so, I mean, you could read any book on yogic philosophy. You can read any, like... Wayne Dyer, Joseph Campbell, you know, Marianne Williamson. I, my favorite book right now is Return to Love. So, Who wrote that? Um, Marianne Williamson. Marianne Williamson. Yeah. So it really is just it's getting back into your heart, mm. getting back into balance, back into your heart. And so with relationships, fear is always the ego. Mm-hmm. Love is always the pursuit of the soul. So in relationships, I mean, what I, in the kind of coaching that I do, there's very specific strategies that I use. So it's not just like hocus pocus and love and this, but the ultimate goal goal is to get people more in touch with who they really are mm-hmm. and not so stuck in the ego mm-hmm. and not so selfish. Mm-hmm. That's why relationships fall apart because we're so selfish. So I hear you saying that <clears throat> the mind is about is about, you know, a, a kind of security mechanism. So what is it? Uh, or figuring out problems, mm-hmm. you know, like problem solving. Mm-hmm. So what I hear you saying a little bit is that, that the, a lot of the obstruction, you know, the obstacles to relationship or to relating effectively is a little bit that we're too in our heads. Yeah, we're too in our heads and we're too in our own egos. We're just too all about self. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's just the bottom line. It's like, and especially now, culturally speaking, in, in our generation, it's all about 50-50. I give you this so that you give me this, you give me this, so I give you this. And so there's like an even, or there's all this like talk about evenness and yeah. equality and even playing field. And you know what? It doesn't fucking work. No. That's a transaction. It's like everybody has a tally, you yes. know, tally board. Like, totally. I gave this to that person. When are they going to get me yeah. back? There's no like... Offering. There's no. no like sense of like service. No sense of service. And the thing is, that is what is killing relationships today. And and you know it makes sense because it's like we're coming back from an earlier time or rebounding from an earlier time where it's like man dominant, woman submissive. So now everything's like even. And yeah. as a result, men are losing their balls. Women are losing <laughs> no. Women are losing like their softness and their receptivity and like all the things that makes a feminine strong. And it's like. It's just, and we're becoming so selfish. Mm-hmm. It's all about self. Mm-hmm. And in a relationship, for a relationship to work, it's got to be all about the other person. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that, obviously, sometimes, you know, I'm not suggesting someone become a doormat. This is excludes. Yeah, so, w- yeah, actually, uh, what is the kind of, because there is kind of a balance there, and when does um, being all about the other person and serving the other person, when does that, like, what... How do you, if you're completely in that modality, how do you recognize when, when the, the, the conditions are such that actually this is an abusive situation? This right. is a potentially abusive situation. 
you know, I was in this one particular community, a spiritual community, uh, my first teacher training, uh, and it was a very specific form of Tibetan Buddhism that actually, you know, subsequently I've, I've realized had a very problematic interpretation of, of a certain concept of emptiness. And, and attached to this concept was the idea that, you know, everything is your projection. Well, if everything is your projection, then, you know, you could end up, you know, telling yourself and legitimizing behavior from your partner that is abusive, saying, well, I'm just, that's just the way that I'm seeing it. If I could just shift my perspective enough, then I would realize that actually, you know, he's helping me or this is a, this experience is a gift. Slippery slope. Yeah. Slippery slope of esoteric philosophical masturbation. Nothing I hate more. (laughs) It's so annoying. (laughs) I'll tell you why. And I'll, and I'll tell you, I'll, I'll, I'll break it down for you. Part of the, the breakdown in like romantic relationships is we come from a belief system that we are without. Mm-hmm. And so we get into relationships to get mm-hmm. love. As opposed, to fill ourselves to up. To fill ourselves up. As opposed to entering a relationship from a place of abundance and getting into a relationship to give. Mm. Because that is our true nature is to give. Mm-hmm. Now that being said, of course there are situations where you give and you are... The thing here, people who are in abusive situations, and I've been in one too, like, you know, not physical, but emotional. We've all experienced that on some level, right? Mm -hmm. People who are in abusive relationships, they're still giving to get Mm -hmm. because they think that if they keep giving, they'll get love. Yeah. And so it's still the same old belief system. If you are abundant and you just keep giving, but you realize that someone is actually not at a place where you are spiritually, intellectually, emotionally, for whatever the reasons are, you walk away. Yeah. I'm really glad you said that because actually another really problematic teaching that I remember was a part of this community was the idea that it was a, this, you know, very kind of simple and reductive idea of karma where it was like, if you want to be wealthy, you got to give money away. So it wasn't that, you know, the ultimate teaching is what you are, you're teaching, which right. is kind of the value, the, the standalone value of being of service and giving just for the, for the beauty of giving because it reflects our true nature. But actually, ultimately, it came back to you. It was like, you're giving because, not because, you know, you're just overflowing and you're abundant and you're offering, you know, money to a person in need. You're giving because you want this, like, you, you think that that's going to, like, trick the system and then you're going to have this kind of, like, you know, boomerang of money coming back to you somewhere down the line. Which I just thought, you know, it's just so... No, it misses the point. Yeah. It misses the point. And it's hard. I mean, it's, this is all easier said than done. So this is not me preaching. Like, whatever I say, these are all lessons that I have to learn for myself. And these are all things that I have to contemplate. You mm-hmm. know, do I enter relationships from a place of scarcity? Mm-hmm. Can I actually feel abundant? Can I give? Because our greatest fear, the two greatest fears of all human beings is... And this is something that I learned from Tony Robbins. And it so, rings so true for me. If I, I mean, I've taken the last year to really reflect upon this. And it's so true. Is that we're not enough. And that if we're not enough, we're not going to be loved. Mm-hmm. So if you were to really think very honestly about your current relationship or your past relationships, if anybody was, most of the decisions that they made were made based out of fear. And fear of not being enough. Mm-hmm. And if they're not enough, it's that they won't be loved. And so when you operate, when you have two people operating like that in a relationship, 
it's ultimately, it may work. Anyone can make a marriage work. Anyone can make a relationship work. But work and thrive are two different things. Anyone can stay married for 100 years. You know, anyone can mm. do it. So, you know, as far as relating the yoga and the coaching, it really is like, okay, so here you are, you practice, you change your physiology. You feel different. You feel more balanced. You feel, you feel more heart-based. You feel more grounded. Whatever it is, you, you feel different. You feel more like yourself. Then what? What are you going to do with it? Because in my opinion, the epidemic that I'm seeing today in the yoga community, and this is myself included, is that we're doing all this stuff to change our psychology, to change our mind through our bodies and our breath. Mm-hmm. But then what are we doing with it? Like, what decisions are we making? Looking hot. Yeah, exactly. Seriously. <laughs> Fixing my ass, yo. Yeah. But what are we doing with it? How are we, how are we actually making our lives more fulfilling as a result? Well, and I think, you know, I'm happy you said that because I think that there, for, there is, I think, it just sort of just ends with kind of, oh, I'm healthier. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm fitter. And, and a lot of people, that's just sort of the end of the road. But, you know, even it, it, it doesn't often end with uh, this idea that it's about love and service. It ends with this idea that I'm healthier and happier. But it's, it's, it's ultimately just about your own individual experience. You know, it's not necessarily I'm healthier and happier. I mean, you get that sometimes you hear it said in classes mm-hmm. like you're, 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 you know, you're aligning yourself so that you can... Um, get out of your own way, Mm -hmm. you know, so that you can be of service to others. But I feel like even when that's said, there's still kind of an underlying compulsion to do the practice just for kind of your own bliss. So ultimately it ends up being not a relational act. Right. Yeah. I mean, look, some people, sometimes we need to practice because we're just feeling really dark. Mm-hmm. And we need to bring, we need to transmute the darkness into lightness. I mean, that's really what it is. It's not about um, bringing the the dark into the light, but really just bringing the light into the dark. And that's and that's fine. But what's the largest? What's the larger purpose? This is something that I would love all of us to contemplate more. Like, what purpose does that really serve? beyond the self. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? So if you're becoming, if you're actually transmuting the darkness into light and you are becoming more light, then it's your responsibility to share that light, mm-hmm. whatever that looks like. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, sometimes the practice is about, is really motivating. You know, you feel really motivated after. So what are you procrastinating in your life, you mm-hmm. know, what are you not doing? What are you not getting done? Mm. You feel motivated? Like, check off something off your list. Do something. Get into action. So that, I mean, that's like a lot of what I was craving. It was just like, so I got all this yoga and everything, but, but now what? Because there's a lot of us yogis that are still depressed. Mm-hmm. And still feeling dark. And we keep practicing and practicing and practicing and trying to burn, you know, the tapas and all that. But we're still... And so I really feel like with the coaching, it's like it takes it a step further. It's like we still actually have to... 
transform our lives into something that we really want mm -hmm. it to be. And I don't think that yoga is the only way there. So do you, do you think that the lingering depression is related to a problem with relationships? Um, well, first I want to say, I, I don't mean to say that all yogis are like depressed. I'm just saying, you know, I, <laughs> but I just, I still think that there are people, it's not like, so we're all practicing this very ancient system that's mm. supposed to bring more light into our lives, but a lot of us are not feeling very light. Mm -hmm. It's and not so, embedded in a larger framework. Yeah, yeah, I mean, or like what else does, you know, it's not changing all the patterns. It's a step in the right direction, but then what next? Mm -hmm. What next? Mm -hmm. So um, it's not just relationships. You know, some people are depressed for whatever reason. Or like, you know, depressed would be a strong word. Just feeling dark. And they're practicing, they're practicing, and they're practicing. But the lightness is not coming or it's coming, but it's transient. Mm -hmm. So what, what does it take to really make a shift? Great. Okay, so I want to ask you a little bit now about um, relationships. So you're doing some wor a workshop this coming, no, two Saturdays from now? Yeah, a free talk. It's the third free talk I'm giving out of a series, yeah. Great. So we're gonna, I want to give all the details for that towards the end of our chat. But I wanted to ask you what you would say are the major kind of problems or obstacles that relationships are encountering in, you know, modern society. Okay, so... Um what I touched upon before, the whole 50-50, we're, we're in a partnership, this mm -hmm. is a contract. I do for you, you do for me, and this very like even playing field. Mm -hmm. Not, it's a, it's a, it's a, I mean, it's a step in the right direction as compared to how relationships were in the 1950s and all that, but it's, it doesn't work. There's no passion in that. Mm -hmm. And then you're just giving to get. So I would say that's like the main problem. Like... I just think that the, even using the word partner has become, you know, it was first like in the gay community. Now it's like everyone's using it. My partner, my partner, gay or straight, my partner, my partner. And it's like, I think it should just be a, a word that's eradicated from the gay and the straight community because partner just implies like a business transaction. Mm. You know, say anything else, lover, boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever it is, husband, wife, um, so I, I, I would urge people to really think about what that really means, like what you're in a partnership. Like, that's just not very sexy. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds compatible, but it's not very sexy. So, and then another thing is, and, and what comes with that is that we are entering relationships so protected. Mm. And I understand why, and it's not a judgment. But we're entering relationships so protected, and we don't really take the time, like... In the beginning of a relationship, what we refer to as the honeymoon period, what makes it so blissful is that each person has a genuine curiosity, curiosity about the other person. They want to know everything about him or her. They want to get to the bottom. Like, we're like little detectives trying to figure out what makes them tick, what turns them on, what lights them up, what makes them sad, this and that. And the reason why the honeymoon period fades, and it doesn't have to, is because all of a sudden we stop getting curious and we start thinking about ourselves because we become very fearful. Mm -hmm. And so if you want to keep a relationship thriving and alive, you have to continuously be, be very curious about what makes this other human being light up. 
and mm. do everything you can to light that person up just like you did in the beginning. Mm. And when they fuck up, you know, if they, when they fuck up is to have some heartfelt understanding. We are so judgmental. Mm. We are constantly judging ourselves. We are constantly judging our partners. Of course, people can mess up. They can cheat. They can do or they can, you know, be abusive. And, I, and you definitely have to have a strong sense of self to leave something that no longer serves you, you know, that really doesn't feel deep in your heart healthy or right. You know, that's a whole other conversation. Mm. But the majority of the time, when relationships are not working, it's not because of abuse. It's because of people being selfish and not doing... Losing interest in the other person. Yeah, just not doing what they did in the beginning. You Mm. want your relationship to be like how it was in the beginning? Don't think about who you were in the beginning. Mm Mm-hmm. You keep attracting the same kind of person. You keep, or like you, better, better said is, you want a certain kind of person to be attracted to you. How are you going to become that person? Who are you in the beginning of relationship? Mm-hmm. Because the, the key component to a healthy relationship is emotional fitness. So you want someone who's emotionally fit, you got to become emotionally fit. And if you decide that you're in a relationship with someone who really just isn't fit emotionally and and can't get there, you just part ways. It's fine. Mm -hmm. But that's really, that's what's going on in relationships today. Yeah, and it seems like the the lack of emotional fitness, I mean, we're really, it seems to me that we're socialized, and I think it's also represented in, you know, in media and in movies, that there's... And you, and you sort of touched on this before, that there's a lack, mm-hmm. uh, there's an emotional lack, mm-hmm. and the, a partner you know, or a, a relationship is really supposed to be the person that fills that emotional lack. Mm-hmm. And so there isn't this coming from a place of fullness or abundance that you were talking about before. But that is so, it's so hard, you know, what you're saying is really radical because it's really going against all of the messages that are being sent. Oh, totally. You know, the way that we're socialized from a young age to think that, you know, that that there's a soulmate out there that is, you know, your other half and you're going to feel empty until that kind of perfect puzzle piece fits mm-hmm. in. And then when somebody feels like, oh, this puzzle piece isn't perfectly fitting into the hole that I have here, that means they're not for me. That means that, you know that somehow this isn't the perfect person and therefore I'm going to drop that person. I'm not going to... And the other thing that I see and I'd love to hear you talk about is that there's no... There's really this sense, and I feel like it's a very young idea and feeling that that a relationship that a person is supposed to be perfect for you mm-hmm. and and there's no kind of growing with or evolving with a partner mm-hmm. uh, in a way that in a way that, you know, shows the, the ultimate malleability of both people. You know, you're, you're, you're changing beings. You're not kind of this static entity mm-hmm. that you're looking for another static entity that's perfect for you. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like the flow and the evolution of a relationship uh, and, and how that sometimes goes up and down. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes you go through stormy periods, mm-hmm. but, but so many people run away at the, the first stormy period because they think it's a sign, oh, this person isn't perfect for me because I've been watching movies since I was two years old about how, you know, we're supposed to have a person who's perfect for us. And then right. it's like, you know, butterflies and lollipops for the yes. next hundred years. Right. Okay. Well, <laughs> I love that. Butterflies and lollipops. Well, first I want to say, I just want to validate what you're saying. Yeah, we've been completely hypnotized by society and by, by culture. 
And so part of like this work that I'm doing is trying to break my own hypnosis Mm -hmm. and trying to break the hypnosis of, of other people into believing that you are actually vacant without this other person. Mm -hmm. Do I think life is better when you're in love? Totally. That makes sense. Of course it is. And there's nothing, there's no reason to like deny that. There's no reason to deny the fact that like you can feel abundant, but you can want a relationship, but mm. want a relationship because you want so much. You have so much to offer. You have so much love in your heart that you have to give it. And of course you want to receive it too, but it's like you want it, you just want to give it as opposed to being like, I'm a wounded child and you know, I need love and my, my parents are not alive or my parents are alive, but you know, they don't give me the same love as I did when I was a child. So it's like constantly trying to, <laughs> to replenish that. Um, I do believe that with the work that I'm doing or what I, the, the strategies that I'm learning that yes, you're going to go through stormy periods, but I do believe that a relationship can thrive mm-hmm. and can have a lot of lollipops, even 50 years in because, and rainbows, if we just think about if you love someone, you would do anything for them. Mm-hmm. And what's happening in relationships is that we're saying that we love the other person, but we're constantly complaining about what we're not getting. Mm-hmm. And this idea of perfection, it's another way that we have just become horrible. Like we are in this weird epidemic where we're judging people for being human. They make a mistake. And all of a sudden we run Mm -hmm. because we're judging them. And if we, and all we want to do is be accepted for our darkness as well. You have to accept someone else's dark. Someone will grow and change and break patterns when their loved one is accepting them for who they are. Yeah. And I feel like there's a lot of times in which when, when, in a relationship, when someone first witnesses their partner's darkness, even, you know, if it's just like a single event in a two-year, three-year, four-year relationship, whatever, there's times in which that becomes so big that it's like all they can see. Mm -hmm. So even though the status quo, the normal of the situation is, you know, a caring, loving partner, that that one event of, you know, an explosive um, outburst or anger or something becomes like the sign that, you know, this person is crazy or I can't be with this person if they're capable of that, you know? And, you know, we all have to have standards, Mm -hmm. you know, if there's like an explosivity that happens and it's directed towards you and you feel like you're unsafe, that's one thing. But if you see someone explode, I mean, get curious about it. Like what's happening? You know, I mean, you know, an, ex- an explosion is pent up energy. Where is mm-hmm. the energy? Why, why is that person like a pressure cooker? Why is that person not, you know, releasing energy on a regular basis mm-hmm. and get curious? Yeah, we do. We tend to, we tend to wave the, the, uh, the white flag or the red flag, I should say, like right away and run away. Yeah. And then I do think this is, this is like a whole other conversation, but I do think that a lot of us, especially I think women tend to do this more than men, we see red flags all the time before we actually enter a relationship with someone, and yet we ignore them because we think that we can change them. Yeah. That's a whole other conversation. But yeah, we are, um, you know, p- 
people are stormy. And and sometimes the storms, you know, when you were saying this about being curious, I feel like we, you know, if we're to, you know, believe yoga philosophy that, that, that these kinds of energies sometimes are just passing through. Mm-hmm. But we're accustomed to kind of think, oh, that storm that arose originates within and I need to, you know, figure out the source of that or the source of that must be something really fucked up. Sometimes things are just passing through. I mean, there's totally. so many energies moving through us and around us at all times. Maybe it's just, you know, uh, the kind of cascading effect of like some really nasty comment that was made by someone in the subway. You know, it's like, it's like that chaos theory idea that a butterfly's wings in Texas can create a tornado in Timbuktu. You know, we just don't know often, you know, what is, what is causing the storms of our heart and our mind. And it doesn't mean it just because we have them, it doesn't necessarily mean that they originated within in that kind of like brute sort of psychological way. Totally agree with you. I think that we're like all stuck in this weird pattern where we pathologize everyone and Mm -hmm. everything and uh, we tend to think, well, there must have been something that happened in his or her childhood. Blah, blah, blah. Emotions are just emotions, mm-hmm. and we have to not give them too much weight. Yeah. I think it's more important to realize within yourself what your emotional center of gravity is. If yeah. your emotional center of gravity is anger, then there's something, there are certain things that, you know, you know, with coaching, it's kind of great. You could just kind of figure out, like, what are sort of some of the patterns in that, mm-hmm. you know? And I could go into great further detail, but I won't. But there are, like, these whole strategies around it. If you're great, if you're, you know, it's fulfilling some need. So if, if your emotional center of gravity is depression, it's fulfilling a need. Like, people, we get addicted to our emotions mm-hmm. all the time. So if you feel like you're in a relationship with someone whose emotional center of gravity is anger or depression, like, that's something that needs to obviously be discussed. Yeah. And perhaps, you know, analyzed or whatever, looked into. But, yeah, sometimes shit just happens. I mean, I know, especially for women, it's like we have hormonal fluctuations all the time. There's no, it's not about what happened, you know, in the womb. Mm -hmm. It's like I have my period. You know, and I hate to be so crass, but it's like, or like I'm pregnant or I'm PMS. And it's like, you know, it sounds so trite, like as as an excuse, but like that's, that's very real. Yeah. You know, hormonal fluctuations are very real. And sometimes you just get agitated. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't reflect who you really are. And yeah. yes, I do think we're way too judgmental of that. Yeah. For sure. And if you see your partner, hmm, there's that word, partner. But if you see your loved one unhappy or seems unhappy in your relationship, the first question you should ask yourself is, what am I not giving this person? Mm-hmm. Not what the hell is wrong with this person? Yeah. And I feel like if you ask yourself that, what am I not giving? What am I not providing? Then you have such a greater chance of success in that relationship mm-hmm. as opposed to, well, I can't make this person happy, so I'm going to leave. Yeah. That's great. So one thing, I I really love this idea, emotional center of gravity, and I want to just ask you, and I hate to kind of ask a kind of generalizing question, but if you could um, kind of point out one or two emotional centers of gravity that you think are kind of most represented um, or seem to, you know, pop up um, more consistently than other emotional centers of gravity, what do you think those would be? I mean, it really just depends on the person. Mm. I mean... You, you know, you've heard the, the saying of someone having a sunny disposition. Mm-hmm. 
Right. And, 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 and you speak to someone with a sunny disposition, and I'm talking about like authentically a sunny, a sunny disposition, not like fake positive, you know, positivity, which we see too often in this community, like, oh, everything's great when everything's not great, mm-hmm. you know, like there's, because that's just like, that's not being real, that's not being truthful. But someone who really does say things brighter. Mm-hmm. Their emotional center of gravity is like they, they attribute a certain meaning to life. Mm-hmm. So life to them, if you were to ask them, life's a, you know, life's a, life's a journey. Life's an adventure. Life is fun. You know, it's just a belief system as opposed to someone with a center of gravity of like sadness. Mm-hmm. You know, life's, life's a struggle. Mm-hmm. That's their belief system. You can change it at any time. It's just a habit or a pattern. I don't know, like, if I see um, any one particular pattern. I mean, I do think that sadness and anxiety is becoming way too prevalent. And I think that, um, you know, barring any real psychological issues where people have to be medicated, I do think that people are over-medicated. Yeah. And really... There are so many people who are medicated for quote-unquote depression, and they're not really depressed. They just don't... They're just stuck in a pattern. Yeah. I know that there are people who are, are and I'm not talking about that, but most people are just stuck I totally in agree a with pattern. You. Yeah, I totally agree with you, and I'm so glad you said that because I think... Yeah, and, and I never would want to say that certain people shouldn't be medicated under certain conditions. There are right. some people that absolutely, you know, those, those are... those. Um, prescriptions are very helpful for, yeah. but there's uh, an, a, you know, a cultural, you know, dare I say addiction to the idea that, you know, I need to solve this right away mm-hmm. and that, you know, something that appears pathological, like, you know, the experience of sadness is, is somehow something that is reducible to my neurochemistry mm-hmm. in such a way that mm-hmm. like, and, and of course, as we know from, from neuroscience, the brain is actually hugely malleable, mm-hmm. you know, to the point where someone who uh, got into a trauma, I was watching this documentary recently, and this person had a traumatic accident, and, 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 and it looked like they were going to be paralyzed. But they started to do this form of physical therapy where they started out with the minutest movement, just repeated day after day after day, just cultivating a pattern of, you know, just trying to activate those neural transmitters. Mm-hmm. And they forged new connections in their brain. Right. And, but it was a, because of a daily practice. It was because right. of a daily practice. But people don't want to wait. You know, people don't want to, like, take the time to cultivate new habits of behavior. And like you were saying, yeah, it's a pattern and people can change it all the time, but it's hard, right. you know? Well, it is hard. Well, it's hard because most... I'll, I'm going to demystify something. And this is something I'm going to be talking about in the Uplift Project, this thing that I'm currently working mm-hmm. on that's happening next weekend. But... Um, the reason why it's hard to change is because our problems are our greatest addiction. Mm. Nothing is more addictive, not even heroin, than our problems. Because familiarity is where the nervous system relaxes the most. Mm. So it's hard to change. And I speak from experience. It's not a judgment. It's hard to change because... There's a part of us, even if it's unconscious, that don't want to change. Yeah, because Because it's more comfortable. Because there's comfort in it. Mm -hmm. And we like to be comfortable. So there are three ways that you can change your your state, 
And your state is basically in direct proportion to how you feel emotionally. So if you're feeling psyched, you have a certain state. If you're feeling sad, you have a certain state. Mm -hmm. Your state is reflective of two things. A, your physiology. You look at sadness, it has a a uniform physiology. Mm. Shoulders rounded forward, head down, sternum down, voice slow, voice soft, um, tired, Mm. sluggish. Mm. When someone's sad, their physiology is that. They're also focusing on something. They're thinking about why isn't this happening? Why did this happen? What am I going to do? I'm fucked. This or that. Nothing will ever be the same. Mm-hmm. And then they're using language. Um, why me? Why? Um, this sucks. So it's something that Anthony Robbins calls a triad. Your state is reflective of your triad, your physiology, your breath, which is your body and your breath, your focus, what you're actually thinking about, and the language you're using. Mm. If you want to change your emotional, if your emotional center of gravity is sadness, you have to check, you have to change your physiology immediately. Mm. Get up, go to the gym, go do yoga. Anyone who's really sad, they do yoga, they feel a little less sad after. Or sometimes yoga is a little too melancholy. It is. So sometimes it has to be like go boxing. Mm-hmm. You know, because someone who's or sad. Or soul cycle. Or soul cycle. <laughs> yeah, you know, yoga is not the only way. Because mm-hmm. yoga can actually sometimes be too serious. Mm-hmm. So you, but you have to change your physiology, pranayama. Then you have to start, once you become aware of this, then you have to be like, oh shit. I'm sad because all I keep thinking about is my past. Mm-hmm. Oh, I keep retelling the story in my head of something that happened to me, and this really did happen to me, but I'm living in that story, and I keep using language to describe it. If you take someone and their state is uplifted or they're empowered or they're like in a confident state, their physiology, tall, shoulders, back, voice, acute, breath, full, eyes, up. They're thinking about tomorrow, mm-hmm. today. Mm-hmm. The language they're using is, you know, oh, cool, this is, I'm going to make this happen. Um, life's great. You know, they ha- there's a pattern to emotional states. Mm-hmm. Once you recognize the pattern, it's just, it's just, it's like math. Once you recognize the pattern, you can decide, okay, I'm going to start to tackle this. But the only way that someone will actually start to tackle it is if they are curious enough but even more importantly, if they're in so much pain, if they're fed up with how they are currently, that they will change. Mm-hmm. Some people are not fed up enough. Yeah. Well, and also, and that's what, another thing I wanted to ask is that there, there does have to be a certain degree of hope and faith that something like yoga is going to help the situation. Because some people, it seems, are so depressed that they don't even believe that anything can help. Like they literally don't have faith in anything. Right. So, you know, what gets, you know, in what, in that kind of a situation, you know, what gets those people out the door? What gets those people's, you know, Nikes or New Balance on? They need help. They need a coach. They need a trainer. They need a friend. And immediately what I would do with someone like that who has no hope, who like doesn't believe, change their physiology. Mm -hmm. I would get them running. 
they have to have some kind of support system that's going to get their, them out yeah, the door. Yeah, mm-hmm. I do. That's why, coach, that's why coaching is becoming one of the largest businesses out there today in yoga. It's because once you change your physiology, anything's, anything's possible. Yeah. Anything's possible. You take someone who's depressed, you, t- you get yourself in the worst mood, you go for a run, whatever, you're, whatever you want. I'm using running as an example. You do yoga, you go to soul cycle, whatever it is. You change your breath, you go upside down, immediately you feel different. Mm-hmm. Immediately. It's, it's instantaneously. It yeah. It's instantaneously. Yeah. But then you have to be like, then you have to start to like create momo- momentum. The only way to create momentum is to change your physiology. Mm-hmm. It's like, and I'll quote Tony Robbins, it's like, emotion is created by motion. You want to change your emotions, you got to get moving. Mm-hmm. How yeah. do you get... And then if someone who's, like, not doing it, they need help. Mm-hmm. They need a coach. They need someone who's... They need a kick in the ass. Yeah. And hopefully they have somebody there to, you know, yeah. lead the way. So I, I want to ask you a question. We have a couple more questions, and yeah. then we got to get going to your class. Yes. I'm going to take Jillian's class today at Kula. Okay. Um, but... Uh, I wanted to ask you, I don't know if this is kind of a tangential question, but I wanted to sort of get your thoughts on it anyway. Yeah. Um, what, what do you think social media culture and also kind of the larger um, pattern that's developing of, you know, meeting your mate on Match.com or OkCupid or whatever, what do you think that is doing to um, the, the, the culture of relationships and mm-hmm. how they start? And is, is, is there... Is this kind of a, a neutral thing that's not really having any deep impact, or do you think it's deeply impacting the way that we form relationships? Yeah, that's a good question. I'm so like, for me, I would never, I'd never go on a dating site. Like, it's just, it's so not my personality. Well, I think it's, well, first of all, I think it's reflective of the truth that is, we are all desperate for more connection. Mm-hmm and desperate for more love. Um, You know, I I don't know. I can't really speak to it. I know that a lot of people are doing it just to get sex and to go on dates and this and that. You know, know, there's all sorts of things. And um, the problem that I see with it is that you read someone's profile and then you make a decision about Mm -hmm. that person. Like shopping. Yeah. Yeah, and... You'll never get a sense of who that person is mm-hmm. from their profile, ever. I mean, certainly you can look at the picture and be like, that you person's hot. Like, yeah, you can feel attraction or not. And then that's, you know, of course you want to be able to feel attraction. So you can base it on that. But like, you never really, it just feels like a meat market. Mm-hmm. But it is also, I know it's really difficult to meet people and people do really want to love and they really want to feel loved and they really want to connect. But I don't know. I, I, you know, I'd have to look more into it. I'm kind of, I'm biased. I'm just not into it. Yeah. I'm just not into it. Mm. Um, I understand why it's there. Mm-hmm. But I'm because there's no it. longer, you know, there's no longer town hall meetings or like community exactly. centers where <laughs> exactly where people come for the hoedown and exactly. meet, you know, and meet the locals and meet the locals. <laughs> I mean, it really. Is, I mean, online has become the new community center. Yeah. But um, okay. So I then one question I wanted to ask you, um, what. Uh, is your suggestion, and actually your, your talk coming up is about rekindling um, relationships that have kind of moved past their honeymoon period. So this is kind of a, a related question. So maybe um, 
uh, yeah, so the, so the idea of daily uh, relationship, daily sadhana, like the, the daily practice of a relationship for, for, for a relationship that maybe is moving into a period where it's not as easy, but they, they both really want to stay together, mm-hmm. but they're feeling, uh, they're feeling a lack or they're feeling like something has changed. They're not really sure. Uh, maybe they're feeling less connected. You know, Got the honeymoon it. period's okay. over. So what, you know, what kind of practices, okay. practical, you know, things can this couple do to okay. kind of keep that going? So the first thing I want to say is if you want your relationship to come alive, you have to become alive. Mm. So rather than treating the relationship as some sort of separate entity that has a life of itself, the relationship is, the life of the relationship is in direct proportion to how much life each person has. Mm. So what I would say is your daily sadhana should be about how can I be, become more emotionally fit? Change your physiology, the way, the language you use. What do you focus on? Because if you focus on what's wrong in the relationship, that's, what, that's where the energy is going to go. But if you focus on what's right in the relationship and try to bring that into the forefront, that's where energy is going to go. So as far as like practical stuff, you just keep thinking, how can I actually come more alive in this relationship? Mm -hmm. If I feel like I want it to return to a certain place to where it was earlier, how, who was I? Mm. Who honestly, who was I when the relationship was great? And can I, and um, I need to return back to that person. Mm. That's such an interesting prescription because it feels like it's very different from maybe what would happen in certain couples therapy sessions where it's like you're rehashing old wounds and it's like you're talking ad nauseum about, you know, a fight that you had to kind of try to figure out how to get outside it. But what I hear you saying is that don't give it any more energy Mm actually augment the good mm-hmm. by pouring energy into that yes. and, and drawing out the qualities that exist there in the goodness totally. rather than kind of think that, okay, we had a fight, we have to go back and like figure that out when really that's just kind of, you know, turning it into a much larger beast. beast. Yeah. yeah. I mean, listen, you never want to like, you never want to ignore the dark. You never want to stuff things inside. Right. But you also don't want to constantly analyze darkness. What I don't like about therapy is just like this constant analyzation of the dark. And you never, ever, ever get lighter by, by living in the dark. Yeah. So you want your relationship to come, become alive. You have to, come, you have to become alive. You want your relationship to start to be like how it was in the beginning. You have to start, become, you have to start acting like the person who you were in the beginning. You want to know why your partner is, seems unhappy. You have to figure out what it is that you're doing mm. that's not contributing to their happiness. Um, you want to know why you keep having a reoccurring fight. You have a ma- and this is something you can go to my, um, on my website at jillianturecki.com. There's a recording mm-hmm. of my last talk. And at the end of you know, the second half of my talk, I talk about a strategy of why like, certain fights keep coming up. When, when a fight keeps coming up, it's literally because you are not seeing what the person is really asking for. All you're feeling is an affront, a personal attack. As opposed to being the detective, which is what I would love everyone to become more of, and myself included, be a detective. What is this person really asking me? What does this person really need? Mm. What are his or her real fears? Yeah. It's always about coming back to yourself. I mean, this is like 
when a relationship ends, it's always your fault. And I would say that to everyone. It's always your fault. Or not really fault, you were the problem. We always like to think that it was the other person who was the problem, and maybe they were in a lot of ways. But if you continuously think, or one continuously thinks that they were not part of the problem, that they themselves were not a problem as well, you will never, ever get the relationship that you want. Ever. Because it's sort of like, I mean, not only is it a victim mentality, but it's also, you know, a kind of disempowering yourself. Totally. You know, you're disempowering yourself from the power that you have to really create Whatever the conditions for a great relationship. Exactly. Bingo. A hundred percent. It's all in your power. Yeah. This is amazing. This has been so great. And you've thank given you. so much useful information, Jillian. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. I want to ask a couple final um, questions. Well, actually first, you know, do you have, or is there any other, you know, kind of parting advice that you would want to give to couples? Yeah. Um, I feel like you just gave a lot, yeah. but if there's anything else. When you love someone, you would do anything for them. If you mm. really love the person who you're in a relationship with, you have to step outside of your own head and into their hearts. Mm. See the world. See yourself how they're seeing you. Mm. How can you make it better? That's beautiful. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so my last question, one of the offerings that we give uh, on the website, Five Tapas, is this, um, it's a resource called the Embodied Philosopher's Library. Mm. And it's a library of wisdom texts, yoga books. And so I always ask everybody that I interview if they have two, one or two or three books that, uh, you know, for you, probably ones that would reflect kind of this discussion mm-hmm. that would be really amazing tools that people could turn to right. to learn more about, you know, relationships or the yoga of relationships. You know, I think it would be a good thing to call this what we're, what we're talking about right, today. Right, 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 right. Um, one of the books I would recommend is A Return to Love by mm-hmm. Marianne Williamson. Okay. Um, and the second book, anything by the author, her name, she's one of my teachers. She's actually Tony Robbins' business partner. Um, I'm going to mention three books. Um, anything by the name of Chloe, C-L-O-E, Madonna's, M-A-D. Madonna's. M-A-D-A-N-E-S. Mm-hmm. She does, um, she wrote a book on relationships, so I would definitely pick that up. And it's a very easy read. And then the third book I would recommend is Intimate Communion by mm-hmm. David Dida. And that's all about um, polarity and masculine and feminine energy and the fifth, the the you know the relationship of the 1950s to the to the 5050 relationship now to like intimate communion mm. and that can be read by anyone gay or straight it's just all about the polarity the the different energies the feminine and masculine energy within within us and how that comes up in relationships so i would recommend those those three books perfect yeah and then finally um where can people what tell us the, some things that you're doing right now like what's what's going on with you and yeah. how can people find out more about what you're up to so um my third talk on relationship is going to be saturday november 14th I'm, i've been giving all these talks for free it's from one to two o'clock in the williamsburg studio um i'm actually I have just a few spots left maybe like two or three i'm doing a whole six-week course starting in January. It's six Thursday nights at the studio. You awesome. don't have to be present for all of them because I'm fully recording them, so you mm-hmm. can do some in the home. 
And it's like everything that I've been doing for the last year, you are going to dissect your emotional home. You're going to dissect your relation. I don't, you know, you're going to observe your relationship, your needs, all of that, Le- what it is to be a leader, leadership skills. So it's, good. it's a group coaching course. So I have a few spots left for that. And uh, that's going to be pretty phenomenal. That starts January 7th. And um, yeah, anything else? And then I have the Uplift Project, which is going to be a series of urban retreats that was started by a friend of mine. Um, I'm going to be giving a talk on basically your emotional home and, and how you can change your state in an instant. Alongside with Taryn Toomey, who's going to be teaching the class, Light Watkins, who's going to be teaching meditation, Naveen Mishan, Pranayama. Amazing. Yeah, so that, that's what's that's What what's a nice cooking. lineup. Yeah, yeah. It's a good... And then your website, I know you mentioned it earlier, but yeah, what's your website? Yeah, it's my name. It's JillianTurecki.com. J-I-L-L-I-A-N-T-U-R-C-K-I. So almost. So Jillian is J-I-L-L-I-A-N, last name T-U-R-E-C-K-I. Did I not say that? No, I think you skipped the E. Oh, shoot. Yeah. Okay, well, that'll also be in the show notes for anybody that's (laughs) that's confused. Yeah. All right, thanks so much, Jillian. This has been an awesome conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Talk to you soon. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Jillian Tarecki. If you're interested in finding out more about her and her work, you can go to JillianTarecki.com. That's all for today. Thanks so much. Until next time, friends. Bye-bye.